Welcome to the Women in Government podcast. Whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started. To say that the COVID-19 pandemic made us readjust to a new normal is an understatement. Over the past several months, we've grown accustomed to social distancing, wearing masks everywhere we go, working from home, and attending multiple virtual meetings throughout the day. Hello, I'm Idaho State Senator Abby Lee. Thank you for listening to the Women in Government podcast. On this episode, we're talking about lessons learned, caring for employees, patients, and the community during COVID-19. Joining the conversation is Lauren Dupre, head of HRUS for Takeda, a global biopharmaceutical company that's focused on bringing better health for people, brighter future for the world. Thank you, Senator Lee, and also Women in Government and Lucy Getman for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also get more information by visiting womeningovernment.org. At last count, more than 14 million Americans have been infected with COVID-19. That number keeps growing and is constantly changing how we as a society are living, working, and moving forward with our everyday lives. Lauren, how can we all have better health and a brighter future, especially during this uncertain time? We've all seen our lives this year and the lives of those we love disrupted and really just altered in ways that I think many of us never would have imagined. I know myself a year ago never would have imagined that my five-year-olds would be wearing a mask every day to go to school. And so I think it's given us a lot of time to reflect really on our purpose, our values, and to prioritize what's most important. And so for Takeda specifically, that means focusing on our purpose. And our purpose is exactly what you said. It's providing a better health for people and a brighter future for the world. And so we do this by really staying focused on that. And with that, underlying it with our values. Those values don't change in a pandemic. They don't change in a crisis. Our values have guided us for hundreds of years, actually, as a company. And those values for us are integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. And then we also make decisions based on a pretty unique framework. And I can talk more about this later, but we make decisions based on thinking about patient, trust, reputation, and business. And we call that PTRB. And so I think it's by focusing on this sense of purpose with a foundation of values that that's how we can really achieve this goal, this audacious goal, really, of a better health and a brighter future. I love that. I love that it's an audacious goal. And I love the idea that our values don't change during a crisis or a pandemic. And so that importance of really getting a foundation so that you can weather some of these things. And I look forward to hearing more about that. But as head of HR, you rolled out a brand new model in February of 2020, right as COVID-19 was beginning to hit. And this pivot in operating models has a deep focus on equity and inclusion and more. But it sounds incredibly relevant for the world we're currently living in. And we're going to discuss equity and inclusion a little bit later. But for now, I've got another question. Can you tell me some of your key priorities and guiding philosophy as you started to address this pandemic, including managing the impact on your employees, your patients, and the community? You know, as I mentioned PTRB, patient trust reputation business earlier. And so as we were faced with the COVID-19 pandemic, we knew that we needed to stay true to those values and that we could apply that framework quite readily. It was already so ingrained in our ways of working. We used them to make decisions, both big and small, all of the time. 
So as we were faced with the pandemic, we recognized, I think, first and foremost, our very important role as a global pharmaceutical company is first and foremost to serve patients and communities. And so we were committed to helping those impacted by COVID-19 through those efforts, both in terms of serving broader patients and healthcare provider communities, as well as the health and safety of our employees. But then as we looked to how would we respond specifically to the pandemic, we really focused on four priorities and principles in our response. First and foremost was protecting the health and safety of our employees. If we didn't get that right, nothing else would really matter because we couldn't achieve anything else. Next, we needed to ensure that our medicines were available to patients who rely on them. So ensuring that supply chain continuity and that supply was reliable and there were no breaks in it. Next was playing our part to reduce transmission and support the communities where our employees live and work. We knew that keeping our employees safe was the right thing to do, but we knew it would also have this knock-on effect. The more that we ourselves as a company could help to reduce transmission, that would help the communities in which we serve and we'd reduce transmission overall, and we took that really seriously. And then finally is leveraging our industry expertise to help develop potential therapies to either treat or prevent COVID-19. So that was through things such as leadership and activation in the COVID-19 Plasma Alliance, evaluation of some of our existing clinical assets, as well as cross-industry collaborations and partnerships. And all of these things are ongoing. So with this, we also established very quickly global as well as local U.S. crisis committees. And we gave those committees a high degree of autonomy to make decisions, to take action that followed these principles but applied it locally. And we knew that was the key. We've all seen the pandemic is changing daily. And we needed to make sure that the local teams really had the autonomy that they needed to take action and to see through these principles. Sounds like you have a real commitment for trust and trust in your employees. And as we look at how everything has changed for our employees and where they're working, my background, I work at a community college, and we all of a sudden were faced with having faculty who were teaching from home while their children were home and having to be online at home. How were you able to support your employees during this time, and how are your employees managing working remotely? What are some of the things that lessons that other folks could take from this? We've learned so much during this time, and I spoke earlier about it, it's just unprecedented. When we saw schools back in March and April begin to close, that was nothing that we had ever seen before. And so while we're on this topic of supporting employees, I do want to just take a moment to recognize and thank all the essential workers out there who put their lives on the line and their health to continue to do what they need to do every day. Takeda has many of these, whether it be in our manufacturing plants or our BioLife Plasma Collection Centers. The work they do is so important and We're making so much progress, but they've given us so much towards the greater good here. And so we have over 18,000 employees in the U.S., and they work across several different business units and functions, variety of just different jobs and different kind of nature of those. And so we knew that it wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all, but we knew that there were some kind of very common needs. And so how we approached this was to implement a lot of flexibility. So taking advantage of adjusted work hours, if that was something that worked for you, taking time out during the day. We implemented for many of our office-based employees no meeting days, which allowed people to have more flexibility in when and how they got their work done. 
We allowed people to reduce to a part-time schedule if they needed to, shorten their work week, et cetera, just really a focus on flexibility. We did roll out in 2020, and we're going to have it again in 2021, an additional special paid sick leave policy, which gave an additional two weeks of paid time off. And that was to cover both your own illness, caring for somebody who was sick, or child care needs that came up due to school or daycare closures. Particularly this past year, we've seen many unexpected needs, and so that leave was something that many of our employees felt was really, really helpful. We also were able to enhance, through some partnerships externally, some of the benefits that we have around backup, in-home care, center-based child care, and other kind of virtual learning benefits. We did some of these through Bright Horizons or Care.com, as they also were adapting. Another thing we did that I was really proud of and I thought was pretty unique was we enhanced our volunteer time off policy. So we allowed our employees to take up to five days paid time off to do volunteer work to help those impacted by COVID-19. I think what we saw was the needs were so great. And in some cases, just given the nature of what our work was, it might have slowed down in spots. And so people felt like, hey, I have this time. I want to get out in my community and serve. And that was something that we really wanted to support. And then finally, I'll just add, I think we're seeing this more and more, particularly as we head into the winter months in many parts of the U.S., mental and physical health and well-being is becoming a real priority. And so we've done a lot in terms of communicating the benefits that we have in this space, particularly the telehealth benefits. We do offer emotional and mental health services through telehealth. And so we've made sure just to remind people of that phone number and that website so that if they need it, it's right there and they can access it. Fantastic. I love no meeting days. That's a great idea just to allow people some time to reset. And the idea of recognizing how much our mental health is improved when we can volunteer and give back. So that enhanced volunteer hours is something I'm going to take back to my organization. We're struggling to connect, right? We're working from home. We're isolated. We can't get together. I know I compressed my Thanksgiving dinner. We typically have a large Thanksgiving dinner. We just had a few people together, just my children and my mother-in-law. But how are you able to help continue your company culture? We're not able to connect face-to-face. What are some of the things that you're doing to keep your employees connected when they're working from home or they're feeling isolated? It's something that we've also had to adapt. We've encouraged people to share ideas that they've had. Actually, just this week, a leader was sharing with me they did a virtual pizza cooking class as a team, and they shipped kind of a cocktail-making kit out to everybody. So over a video chat or whatever, they all made this pizza together and made cocktails, and they found that fun. And we've seen that in other places where people have found trivia platforms or just a basic WebEx type of meeting where people will just take the time to have a coffee and connect. We've seen lots of those. We have, though, in a more formal way, increased the communications that we've done with our employees. I think we found that it's really important that those be bi-directional communications. So it's not one way out of let us talk to you, let us tell you everything, but it's so important that we get the questions and the feedback. We did implement in the U.S pulse surveys. We did about three of those since the pandemic started where we've just gone out to employees in a relatively short amount of questions and said, how are you doing and what can we do for you? We did one back in May and then another in August and then another kind of at the beginning of November. And there were quantitative measures, but there were a lot of qualitative comments as well. And I'll tell you, we used those to really adapt what we could do for people. 
But, you know, preserving our company culture, I think we've seen that when you do this right, when you stay connected, when you stay true to your values, your culture will reveal itself for good or worse. I think we were lucky to Kata in the U.S. We went into this with a very strong and unique culture. I often say Takeda in the U.S. is a very special place to be. And so I think that helped us to weather a lot of this. And then many of these measures, I think, helped to even enhance and grow our culture. That's great. So that idea of asking questions and actually having a space and a place to gather those responses and do something with it, I think that speaks to that integrity that you were talking about earlier. According to a September Gallup poll, a new 30% low say they're always working remotely. That's down from 51% in April during the height of restrictions on businesses and schools. So we're adjusting, we're kind of coming back, and this 18 percentage point shift has been offset by a 7-point uptick in the percentage who are now sometimes working remotely. Again, from 18% to 25%. So we're coming back into the office. We're getting back to school. As you shift from 100% virtual working, what does that transition back into the workplace look like? I mean, this is an incredibly complex undertaking. It really is to get back to the workplace safely, which was one of our key priorities. And we recognized throughout all of this that for many of our employees, they never left the physical workplace. I mentioned our manufacturing employees, our BioLife Plasma Collection Centers. And so when we began preparing for this and communicating, we wanted to do so in a way that was very sensitive to that reality. But for our office-based workers who were 100% virtual, what we needed to do first is make sure that we had that safe environment, that our offices were physically were as safe as they possibly could be. We looked at our air filtration systems. We implemented new cleaning protocols. We implemented additional signage, et cetera, and then policies, you know, needing to wear masks and minimizing the number of people in a physical room and having meetings. So all of these policies were so important, as well as some of the technology to enable them. So we needed to implement tools that would allow people to actually book a spot to work at in that given day because we still have to limit the capacity in our buildings. And so those technology solutions were really important. But I think what we've done that I think has gone very well as we transition back is we've communicated and positioned the workplace, the physical office, as a resource. It's a benefit. It is something that is there to help you, whether that be very reliable Wi-Fi, whether that be better lighting, whether it be a reliably pretty quiet place to work. There's so many benefits, I think, that we realized we all missed from our physical workplace. And so we very much tried to communicate it in that way. We are not in any way forcing people. It's been very much a voluntary return to workplace. And what we've seen is that people are kind of coming and going as they need to. One woman on my team is going in most days because her home set up with children and spouse and everything just isn't conducive to work. And so she was very grateful to be able to go into the office. And for others, whether it be due to an underlying health condition or other circumstances, it's just not something that they're interested in right now and that's okay. I do want to share that we are thinking about and studying and working on what this is going to look like in the long term. So right now we're very much still living in the impacts of COVID and we're not back to normal. But once we do go back to normal, it won't be the same normal that we had before. Through some broad work that we're doing, We're understanding what are the preferences of our employees in terms of when we come back, how much they'd like to work virtually or remotely, and how much they'd like to work in the office. 
I'd love to have this conversation a year from now and see what you've learned and what you're doing. As you shared, bringing better health and a brighter future to your employees is really a great way to maintain a happy and productive workforce, but it's not just your internal processes that matter. You spoke earlier about one of the first priorities was making sure your employees were safe, but also that your communities were safe. And caring about communities outside your organization is also a priority and is important. And and I just was looking at this statistic. It says, according to a Horizon Media study, one emerging group placed is a premium on corporate social responsibility efforts. 81% of millennials expect companies to make a public commitment to good corporate citizenship. So with more than 18,000 employees in the United States, what is Takeda doing to help support the communities in which you live and work during this pandemic? You talked about volunteer hours and you talked about flexibility, but what are some other things that could be lessons for other companies and organizations? So we think about this in a number of ways, right? And you mentioned we have our volunteer policy that lets employees really identify causes locally that might be meaningful to them and serve directly. We do also in the U.S. have an employee gift matching program. So for those charitable donations for eligible organizations, we'll actually match those. So again, kind of connecting to the very local communities of our employees is so important. But then we do also have our global corporate social responsibility program. And with that, we prioritize really long-term commitments to disease prevention, capacity building in developing and emerging countries. But we are also focused on our local community in the U.S. here. And so in the U.S., we have a very natural connection to organizations that work to improve lives through medicine and healthcare. So we've been donating almost $2 million annually through our corporate philanthropy there, as well as our matching gift program, and as I mentioned, some of those individual volunteer awards. Right now, there's a lot of urgency, I think, as you mentioned. So we have been working globally. We've donated about $23 million across a few UN-led organizations to help strengthen health systems globally. We've been working as well through the United Nations Population Fund, the World Food Program, also to support some of those vulnerable communities globally as well. And in the U.S., we've also been thinking about, and I know we'll talk about this more, making partnerships and donations to causes that are impacting social issues as well, because as we've seen, the two are connected. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating effect on many of our minority communities in the United States. And the most disproportionately high COVID-19 mortality rate was among Black or African Americans in 35 states. We've also seen with our American Indian and Alaska Native residents in five states. And we're still struggling, certainly, in the Southwest with a number of our American Indian populations and Asian Americans in four states and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders in one state. And just across our nation, we're seeing that the pandemic has revealed and really exacerbated social inequities and longstanding health disparities. How is Takeda specifically helping ensure that people who are most risk are getting this appropriate care? What are some of the things that you're employing to respond to? the most vulnerable populations we have during this pandemic. So where we've really focused through this crisis is our patient assistance response team, who's been working around the clock to ensure that every patient who needs our medicines and treatments can continue access to them safely and without interruption. So as we've all seen, I mean, COVID has disrupted many things, right? It's disrupted employment. It has disrupted people's ability to go out and see their doctor physically or pick up a prescription even from the pharmacy. 
And so we knew that we needed to make sure that we were assisting patients in appropriate but additional ways there. And so we've enhanced our programs. We are helping eligible patients who've lost a job and are experiencing a financial hardship. We have put in place additional measures there. We're enhancing our free drug programs for eligible patients that are enrolled in our programs who've also experienced a loss or gap in insurance coverage due to COVID-19. We've also extended some of the eligibility periods for certain patients to allow them to really be more flexible. And we've also implemented some virtual training that pairs our specially trained nurses with patients to teach proper self-administration of certain medicines from the safety of their own home. So we've put in place some of these additional measures and kind of introduced some of these virtual things to help address some of those disparities. And so also excited, we are working with others in our industry. And so we're supporting the first ever industry-wide principles on clinical trial diversity, which was recently released by Pharma, which is the trade association for pharmaceutical companies. And it was endorsed by companies really across the biopharmaceutical industry. Because I think what we see is that these health disparities, they start early. They start really in the clinical trials. And so this work will aim to enhance education about the role of clinical trials, awareness, but also expand diversity in the trials themselves by reducing barriers to access and participation and ultimately to ensure that we get better data and better access for all. So we talked a little bit earlier about Takeda's commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and you just talked about some of that as we look at the clinical trials and making sure that we have a breadth and depth of diversity. Can you talk about the specific steps that you're taking to create a more diverse and inclusive workplace that reflects the diversity of the patients you serve, and why do you think that's important? It's critical. It is so critical. The purpose of our company, delivering a better health and brighter future through innovative medicine, innovation is the key to what we do. And we know that diversity, equity, inclusion, all of these things will ultimately enhance innovation and therefore better serve patients. It is also the right thing to do from a moral and ethical standpoint. And so certainly in the U.S., we saw the tragic events that unfolded around our country related to racism and some of the violent deaths that we saw of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless others. And so that was a compelling reminder of the work that we needed to do. And so we see this in the patients that we serve and the healthcare systems that we work. We also see it internally. We see our goal is to build a workplace that's as diverse as those patients that we serve where all of our employees are welcomed, empowered, and inspired to use their unique voices and talents. So we know there is a lot of work to do in this space, both individually and collectively. And so we're taking steps in our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so this year, we actually kicked off a multi-year strategy of a truly integrated DE&I strategy across the U.S. So we have eight pillars that we're focused on. We think about DE&I as it relates to talent. We think about it in learning and development, so how we are providing tools and resources for employees. We think about our vendors and suppliers. Who are we actually partnering with and doing business with? Next, we think about communications, both internally and externally. We think about our work and policy and access and connecting that to our vision in DE&I. And then we also think sales and marketing. Are our marketing materials reflective of the diverse populations that we serve? Are our sales practices inclusive? 
We think about patient engagement, many of the things that I mentioned to you earlier, but it may be as simple as what languages are we engaging in? And then finally, we think about medical and driving equity in the health sciences and clinical trials. So by focusing across these eight pillars, we're aiming to improve and enhance and kind of see this vision of diversity, equity, inclusion within our workplace. But we know that we want to impact the community and really the broader ecosystem around us. And so, again, I think it's ambitious, but we are, I would say, energized and excited about the work ahead. We know that it's not going to be short, as I mentioned. This is a multi-year journey and one we might never fully get there, right? It will always be a process, but something we are very committed to. Well, it sounds like it's part of your culture, the culture that you have and the culture that you want to continue creating. And how have your employees responded to these efforts? They have done more than respond to it. They called for it. We have employee resource groups. Many companies have these, right, where different affinity groups can kind of set up and whatnot. Those have always been active, and they were the ones really kind of coming to us, coming to leadership, coming to HR, saying, we need to do more. We need to do more in a structured way as well. And so when we stood up this council, we actually had over a 100 people sign up to participate in the council. And so I should say participate doesn't just mean you get a T-shirt and you feel good about yourself. It actually means right, contributing right. above and beyond, right? Taking on additional work at a time when I know many of us are burning the candle at both ends. And so the response has been tremendous, but it's more than a response. This is really an employee-led and driven initiative. That's exciting to see that integration from your community into your workplace. So in Idaho, we're a part-time legislature, and many legislatures are. We are heading into our legislative session in January, and the big topic is vaccines. There's a lot of excitement for treatments for the COVID-19 virus. Takeda is focusing, I understand, its efforts on plasma from people who have recovered from COVID-19, known as convalescent plasma, which could be a key part in the fight against the new coronavirus. And Lauren, can you explain this plasma-derived therapy that Takeda and other global plasma companies are developing to potentially treat those who are fighting COVID-19? It just sounds exciting and we're all looking for answers and opportunities. I think the news coming out about the Pfizer vaccine is incredibly exciting. I think the FDA has made it clear that they won't compromise on safety, but, you know, also want to make those big efforts to engage in the dialogue quickly so that we can move rapidly in these efforts. I think we have to think about this as it's going to be a toolkit. There's not going to be one single vaccine, one single medicine, one single anything that's going to address COVID-19. There'll be a variety of tools. And so the hyperimmune treatments might be one of those tools. So we are working on a potential plasma-derived therapy. We're doing that as part of this COVID-19 plasma alliance, which I mentioned earlier, an alliance of a number of companies working in this space. And together, we're developing a hyperimmune globulin therapy that we'll be calling COVID-19. It's for the treatment of hospitalized adults at the risk of serious complications from COVID-19. And so the way that this works is we are pooling and processing plasma from recovered COVID-19 patients. So someone who's had COVID-19, fully recovered, we are able to collect their plasma and then actually pool it with other donors. So this is also known, you may hear this convalescent plasma. And so when we do this, we'll be developing a non-branded plasma-derived therapy that will contain consistently high levels of antibodies to COVID-19. 
So we collect the donated plasma, and it goes through a number of processes, purification, fractionization, standardization, along with some virus inactivation steps. And with that, it produces a medicine that has consistent levels of antibodies. And so what's important to understand is that we do this process that purifies the donated plasma to remove any viruses and standardizes it so that you do have those consistent levels. We've seen where hyperimmune therapies have been shown to be effective in treating other severe viral respiratory infections. So we do believe that this has the potential to treat people and that serious risk for complications from COVID-19. And so I want to point out this program, the hyperimmune, is unrelated to some of the discussion that you maybe have heard about emergency use authorization for direct transfusion of COVID-19 convalescent plasma. But, of course, we welcome all efforts that can contribute to any potential therapeutic solutions for COVID-19. Yeah, there's still a lot to learn. I was really intrigued earlier when you talked about this industry-wide collaboration under pharma, and then you just mentioned some non-branded solutions. You touched on this plasma alliance, this COVID-19 plasma alliance. What's its mission and approach, and is this typical where the industry comes together to really try to solve an issue like COVID-19, and what's the impact to date that this alliance has had? We believe that this pandemic, like many crises, demands bold moves. And so when we were faced with this really unprecedented challenge, we co-founded. It's an alliance of world-class plasma companies to help work together to address what we knew would be a global need for effective treatments. And so we've been a leader in plasma-derived therapies for over 75 years. So we bring a lot of experience in development and manufacturing. We felt compelled to offer our scale and our expertise to help. We have a global plasma collection network called BioLife that operates in more than 140 centers in the U.S. and Europe. There's actually a few centers in Idaho as well. And demand for these types of therapies has grown drastically over the past 15 years. And so we knew that having the supply of plasma would be so critical. And so the alliance includes 12 leading plasma companies. So together we're working to accelerate the development of these treatments to really just improve the chances of success and also to increase the supply and availability of medicine if it is improved. And so I think the way that you've seen the pharmaceutical companies and communities come together and be mobilized is really unprecedented. Well, you mentioned the plasma centers that are all across our United States, and we know blood plasma is a safe process. We've used it for more than 100 years to help save lives and many different therapies. I think my community's college students are typically the ones that are coming in to the plasma centers. It's kind of an easy way to pick up a few dollars to help supplement. But I'm seeing more and more families really responding and coming to these plasma centers, particularly those who are COVID-19 survivors who fought off the virus and they have antibodies that can help others fight it off too. Can you tell me about the urgent need for plasma and the Fight is in Us campaign? As you mentioned, it's really just bringing awareness to this area. I think you hear so much about kind of broad blood drives, but the unique needs of plasma are something that maybe you don't hear as much about. And so Takeda and other members of the Alliance teamed up with other organizations, both public and private, for the launch of the Fight is in Us campaign, which mobilized tens of thousands of survivors to donate their plasma. So we've seen celebrities like The Rock and Helen Mirren who are joining the campaign to kind of lend their status to it to just help raise the awareness. 
because the most important step in developing the treatment that I mentioned, the COVID-19, is collecting enough convalescent plasma. We cannot make this product without donors, and so that's absolutely critical. It cannot be made in a lab or by any other artificial method. We actually really need those donations from people that have recovered from COVID-19. As a legislator myself, I have to ask, do you see this experience changing the way government and industry interact? I serve on the Health and Welfare Committee, and we've had a lot of policies and proposals that have come through, but how do you see this changing our interaction between government and the industry? I think I see this experience changing everything. I think we will, in years ahead, look back at this time period as something that fundamentally shifted many, many aspects of our life and of our society, and I think the interaction of government and industry will be no exception. I look at this past year, and I'm so proud of how our community has banded together. You know, some of these partnerships and collaborations that I mentioned are just some of the examples. But we've also seen barriers come down. There's no better way to bring people together, I think, than a crisis. It's a great equalizer, and we've seen that with COVID. Barriers have come down between industry and regulators. And I think certainly we can be proud of some of the government partners and the phenomenal work in being proactive and responsive to needs of patients. I think it's important, though, that as we do this and some of the things we're seeing now with approvals of treatments and vaccines as well is that we not compromise on safety because we have made huge efforts to establish trust in the safety of our products, and that's something that we don't want to ever sacrifice. I think a collaborative approach, though, is what's most important because that is truly what puts patients first. We put our own self-interest aside and focus on patients, focus on people, and focus on the public health. You really can't go wrong in that way. That's great. Hey, I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I have taken so many notes about things that I'm going to take back to my workplace, to my community, and also to the legislature as I consider some of these proposals that will be coming forward. And as we wrap up, can you share some of some of your best workplace practices that we can carry forward from this experience? And again, I hope we can have this conversation a year from now and find out lessons learned and things that have really helped us transition. I think about three things, really. So the first is, at the beginning, establishing what is your foundation, what's your true north, what will be your guiding principles. Those should be rooted in, hopefully, values and a culture that have been established. And then from there, the second thing is making sure that you are setting up systems and teams that can operate in an efficient and very decisive way. So understanding how decisions get made, have the right decision makers at the table, and then trusting them to make those decisions because speed matters in a crisis like this. And then finally, and this might actually be the most important, is focus on people. If you put people first, whether that be your employees, whether that be your customers or the communities that you serve, if you think of that, the rest will really follow. So investing in people internally, providing that support, whether it be physical or emotional, thinking about flexibility and how people work, and always focus to the broader community around you. And so I think if you put people first through any crisis, you'll come out on the other side doing well. So focus on people and your values don't change during a crisis or a pandemic. So I really appreciate your time today, and I'm excited about the things that you're doing on the the front line to help create a culture in an industry that is so needed right now. 
thank you so much for your time. And I really enjoyed meeting you and talking with you today. Thank you, Senator. I enjoyed it as well. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen unprecedented levels of collaboration, increased use of technology, and new ways of working that we would never have thought possible. 2020 may have been a year like no other, but it has certainly transformed our workforce and healthcare community into stronger versions of themselves. Once again, I'd like to thank Lauren Dupre, head of HRUS for Takeda, for providing such incredible insights. I'd also like to thank all the listeners for taking time to hear this important discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also email us by visiting womeningovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.